everyone and welcome to Life Beats with Sirisha on Radio Caravan. This is your host, Dr. Sirisha Kuchmanchi. I'm a former tech executive, an entrepreneur, and a podcast host. You are tuned into 104.1 FM on Radio Caravan and 700 AM. I host a podcast, Women, Career, and Life, where I share stories and advice. So if you're thinking about what discussions to have with your boss, you know, how to grow in your career, you can check out the podcast on any of your favorite podcast platforms. It's a top 30 person Spotify podcast, so search for women, career, and life. And if you're looking for a community of women, uh, I just launched Sahita, which is a community for South Asian women for career and financial empowerment. So if you're trying to figure out how to manage your finances, you know, how to get into those leadership roles, you're looking for like-minded women to walk the path with you, to answer questions, Check out sahita.live, sahita.live, and um, you can reach me or email me or DM me through Women, Career, and Life, either on Insta or through Gmail. So let's dive into today's program. I am really excited to have two amazing, wonderful women who actually, today's topic is learning about academia. What is the university? At life look like some truths and some myths and uh, you know many of us might have very little experience on what that life looks like so I want to introduce our guest today I have Sneha Bharadwaj she's a professor at TW Texas Women's University and Karavi Vespora who is an associate professor at University of Texas at Arlington and is also the director of the PhD programs there and they have been in this field doing academia for a while. So they are going to give us some insight into what made them choose this, what does life look like, and just get some insight. So Seha, did you always want to be a professor? Like, how did you end up in this role? Yeah, so um, I um, graduated with a master's in speech and hearing science. Um, it was a clinical degree in speech language pathology, and I was destined to work as a speech language pathologist. Um, but um, way back in my master's program, um, we had a thesis option, but for both our first and second year of master's degree. And during that dedicated time to do research, um, I felt like I um, uh, was waiting for that slot every day, that dissertation hour that they called. And so um, I think that was the beginnings of uh, my research interest, um, and I and I knew that um, academia is the place for me. Um, you like the research aspect and, I, the, and the discussion. Yes. Okay, we'll come back to that one. Robi, what's yours? Okay, so I'm Karobi Besborwa, and my uh, background is in uh, public affairs. Public affairs includes public policy, public administration, and my specialization is nonprofit management. So. Um, Getting into academia was by accident for me. Uh, it, it was um, so I was working as a graduate research assistant and a graduate teaching assistant during my doctoral studies, and um, so I had sort of, uh, you know, I had the experience of working with students teaching in the classroom, um, and then um, this job offer came up for visiting assistant professor at uh, University of North Texas, and my chair just sent my resume and a recommendation letter and then that started my academic journey and that's how i landed in the academia and higher education you know oftentimes we actually accidentally follow your <laughs> careers right more than we realize and 
I wonder, Sneha, when you said you wanted to do research, did it turn out like you envisioned it? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And to this day, I I would, I prefer um, doing research than um, than than teaching. And and I'm in a setup that is um, mostly teaching, and I've learned to enjoy teaching as well. But um, research will be my first passion. Okay, it's your first love, which is totally understandable because I come from sort of an academic. Yeah, academic background just as a kid growing up and doing research in school and it's something I love but when I started working in industry I like the sort of the immediacy of actually seeing the final product at the same time so I think I, I see both sides of it mm -hmm. so what is your life look like every day like on a daily sort of monthly yearly basis give us what does it look like because I think that's the hard part when you're not in that field mm -hmm. to understand sure so um, when I um talk to my friends or someone that's not in academia um, they tend to ask me so um, how many classes do you have to teach or are you done with teaching so um, most of the time academia is sort of you know misconstrued as teachers or teaching in higher education but there are actually three pillars in academia one is teaching one is research and the other, third component is service um, and again, depending on what type of university that you are in, are you in a teaching institution? Are you in a research intensive institution? It depends. Um, your percentage of how much research you get to do, scholarship you get to do versus teaching versus service is, um, is you know, it varies. So, um, um, and again, in some universities, it's it's up to us to kind of define those those. Uh, times that we put in so on a day-to-day -day basis what it would look like is um, you if you're running a lab you know you would be doing you know data collection one day or, or you could also be teaching and and doing research but you're also serving on several different university level committees college level committees and department level committees that you are put on um, or you can also choose to participate in those committees by interest so you have a ton of committees that you're in that's your service to the university and Again, you're teaching, the load varies depending on what university you're at. And then if you have your own lab, then you're also conducting research and that can bleed into days and weekends or, you know, depends. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because it's the structure is a little different than corporate structure in the sense, because my father, you know, was an academic too. So he would go in the nights, you know, he finished dinner and we'd go hang out and, you know, go. That's, that's how I grew up. So I totally understand that side. What I thought was the cool factor was that he got to take trips for his conferences and travel the globe and hit pretty much every continent. And that was the thing that most appealed to me as a kid. But when 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 actually sort of the rubber hit the road and I had to make a decision when I got to PhD was like teaching is is a different uh, it's a different mindset, a different way of doing things and teaching students, right? So it's, you have to have a passion for it and yeah. And the thing. So, Karavi, what speaks to you? Which is your piece? Well, so, I work at the University of Texas at Arlington, which is a R1 university. So, it's a high research university, which means that faculty has to put in a lot of time doing research. Uh, teaching is important, very important actually, um, because without students, we don't exist, right? <laughs> so, teaching is important, but research is even more important. Um, so, for me, um, I also do administration on the side. So as Neha said, uh, we have teaching research service. Service meaning nothing happens in a university without 
the faculty working on it like from our operation operating procedures like uh, our like promotion tenure hiring firing every decision is made by a group of faculty working on it so it's like a peer it's, almost. it is everything goes through peer committees from review process to hiring to firing like everything and is that considered the administrative part or is that this something is service okay so that's what i just wanted to clarify that yes. because i would think that of as admin but you were very intentional about the word service so admin is different right that is uh, being a director yes. yeah a lot of people were being you know leading some programs or this thing you're probably heading those committees or even a step above the committee overseeing the program yeah. like in your case that you are looking at like, right so as an administrator uh, i cannot do anything unless a group of faculty tells me hey this is the policy so um, the policies themselves are approved decided discussed by the faculty committee and then i'm the one who kind of puts it oh, through so the paperwork. Oh, it is a democracy very much. It has a similar setup as the legislature at Austin. Mm. So we have faculty senate, which is like the decision making body, the policy making body. Um, I'm also a faculty senator there. So anything that happens has to go through the senate body. Um, and then any programmatic changes has to go to the graduate assembly, which is like the house. Um, so it's the setup is it's like a small universe like a small sorry legislature so that's why we have university president okay <laughs> and then and, we have all these and do you have seasons just like the senate and the legislature you only meet like at certain no, times okay not there because they, the their terms are pretty short when you actually look at it like less than 100 days i think <laughs> yeah. so, but yours is different it's yeah. throughout the year <laughs> it's throughout okay. the year. and what do you what do you do research on like what is your so, uh, my research is on um, mostly community-based organizations, uh, local government organizations, uh, non-profit organizations. So there are different ways I look at it. So I look at how policies influence how organizations work and how organizations can advocate for better policies. Um, so that's one, the organizational behavior part. And then I also look at how uh, organizations can be more efficient, more productive their capacity. So I look at how the people work within these organizations. So one of uh, the big projects I'm working on right now is an NSF funded three year um, grant, which is on um, the coastal Bend region of Texas. Uh, what I'm looking at are like the grassroots community based organizations and how they are getting together to advocate for better poly environmental policies because with all the ships and the oil and gas mm -hmm. industries developing there, um, people are getting health issues and so it's local folks who are getting together to advocate for better policies so that's yeah. a big one yeah I'm, I'm going to kind of stay out of the politics sure, i want sure. to do on the spot <laughs> but it's interesting because as i was driving up today the texas that you know on npr they were talking about um tesla mm -hmm. is oh i think it's tesla or spacex one of one of those one of Musk's company about opening a lithium factory in that Corpus Christi region and there's discussion around the same thing. It's a community. Some are saying yes, jobs, you know, 162 to 150 jobs. The other side, they're concerned about the environmental factor and they filed all the right papers. So there's all of that discussion going on. So you're right at that intersection of it. Yes, I am. Okay. And Sneha, your research is, how how is it around speech? So my research has, um, again, evolved over the years. And again, um, it's what we call programmatic research that, you know, you have an overarching question and you have small studies leading up to that big picture. So um, right now I am um, looking at various outcomes in children with hearing loss. Um, so um, 
back in the day uh, when the technology was not that great, uh, we were looking at a lot of speech and language outcomes. And uh, now kids who receive technology, um, they are sort of behind in terms of reading skills, reading comprehension, and the cognitive domain. So I'm um, looking at school-age children in terms of their higher language abilities, their cognitive uh, outcomes, as well as reading comprehension outcomes. I can imagine the impact that COVID mm -hmm. had then. Your research, either it probably reset it or it, it moved it up or it's like, you know, it must have shifted sort of like a step function in some way on how you're looking at it. Yeah, I mean, I think what COVID did was also put a stop, you know, to, um, you know, data collection and things like that because it was you know um, uh, schools were shut down and there was no access and now schools are opening up for data collection so my research was actually on a pause and so i did a meta-analysis and systematic reviews which you don't need people to do research on so i was um, engaged in writing some papers through meta-analysis um, but now um, I'm going to start collecting, actively collecting data for my research. So if you're tuned in, you're listening to Life Beats with Sarisha. So today I have Sneha and Prabhi talking about life in academia. What does it look like? The truths and busting some myths. Uh, if you're checking out, you can check out my podcast, Women, Career and Life, and join the South Asian community for women at sahita.org. So you talked about two things that I wanted to dive in. You talked about meta-research. I do not know what that means. Um, and then I know that when you're doing research with people, there is sort of a review board, right? IRB. How, how does that look? And then I wanted to ask about NSF funding. I'll come back to you about that. But what does that process look like for someone who's doing it? So um, when you are collecting data from um, human subjects, um, every university has an institutional review board that has a committee that's represented by the community. Um, and um, basically, it's a very rigorous process to ensure that there's no coercion, uh, that you're not recruiting people for research, and that there's no harm done to the individuals. Um, and that there is justice, you know, in terms of, you know, what's in it for them in, in terms of participating in the research. And so, um, um, so there's a application that you submit with your proposal and then they go through to make sure, um, you know, um, how we're going to recruit, what is the policy and, you know, um, in terms of um, um, who is going to be recruiting for you and um, if there is coercion, if there is any, you know, in effect, trying to make sure that this is a voluntary process and that, you know, participants can say no at any given point. Um, but it's also to ensure that whatever data we're collecting, how are we collecting and how are we storing and how are we destroying? So all of these pieces um, are put together in a paperwork um, called consent form mm -hmm. um, and everything is explained and uh, there's a policy and procedures that we have to follow in, 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 in every step um, yeah, starting from recruitment to data collection to storage to destruction of the data and so i think all of that is you know um, taken care of by the irb that makes sense because you're protecting people's privacy and their right to information and actually interesting in some ways it intersects with your research around protecting the community and the people so both both aspects touch on the same thing about your right to your to your rights to your privacy to your confidentiality and to be able to exercise it mm -hmm. and get consent 
So what is uh, the, what is meta-research anyway? Oh, meta-analysis. Meta-analysis is sort of um, um, looking at the papers that have been published. Um, let's say I was talking about the outcome data. So you have so many papers coming out saying this particular intervention, this particular treatment is effective. And then there are other studies that say, you know, we didn't find it to be effective. And so you basically are analyzing all of those studies, putting them together to make sense of what's coming out of this set of research. And so you pull papers that are effectively doing similar things, similar, you know, using similar interventions, for example, and trying to see, you know, distill the essence of all of those papers rather than people just being lost about what do we, how do we make sense of all of this? So essentially sort of in layman's terms, the information overload, you're trying to curate it and tell, okay, this is what it is. This is what the research technically from all of that statistically shows that this is how it pays out. And either you choose to prove it or disprove it or wait for the outcome from your research. Yes. Okay. You talked about NSF grants, mm -hmm. so how does that work? Like, do you learn in college and university as you're a graduate researcher how to write this? What does that process look like? I know NSF is only one of the granting agencies, obviously, that private com companies and you know government and international okay. organizations. So what does that process look like? So the process is um, something that you learn on the job. <laughs> um, as a student, you might be asked to write research proposals and uh, you might be asked to apply for funding mm -hmm. from different sources. It could be internal to the university or external agencies. And that's how you get into this whole you know, uh, practice of writing proposals, right. making it sound convincing. And so yeah, somebody yeah. <laughs> feel like, oh, this is a great project and we should support them. So that's how it starts uh, for um, projects that are supported by NIH or NSF, um, the criteria is that it has to have um, inputs from different disciplines. So currently I'm working with civil engineering, computer engineering, architects, urban designers, and me, public policy. And public policy falls within like everything, right? Um, so um, I am kind of a good collaborator for many disciplines. Um, so and my uh, expertise being in like nonprofit organizations, advocacy, public policy. Um, these are issues that, you know, NSF funds. Um, so together we wrote proposals. So first we did a pilot study um, and that was a $150,000 grant for one year. And we did a pilot study in a small um, community, a small town of 800 people, uh, right in the throes of, you know, this whole environmental problems and then um, we submitted we had great results we submitted the report and then we also published a paper out of it and so that led to this bigger grant of 2.5 million dollars for three years and now it's extended to like the whole coastal bend area so the, what I'm, the point I'm trying to make is that for everything we need to show evidence everything is evidence-based um, and without evidence other things don't happen so we have to show proof of concept exactly um, yeah that's what i was just thinking you have to show <laughs> hey this is my idea my trial yes. words and here is the yes. proof and here is my business. so one of the things that i would like to mention and i'm pretty sure sneha will agree to this like whether it's research or teaching we have to create everything like from our own intellectual property in terms of our teaching notes or our research uh we also have to market it we have to recruit participants it could be students or it could be in research and so we have to do like everything from the concept to the implementation we don't have any like support staff to help us out it's just yeah. one person's show and that's how we work in academia right Seha? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, of course, you can have student collaborators, and if you you're, you have students, you have a lab, and you have graduate students. Um, um, you know, you can always uh, they can be part of your project, and um, usually graduate students are, you know, I think. Uh, the, the most supportive. Um, yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, it, it's, a, it's, it's an ecosystem, some, right? You need the graduate students. I mean, it's a place for them to do research, for you to head the project and provide guidance as well. Yeah. We have five minutes, so I have a couple of questions that I wanted to ask you. For those of you tuning in, you're tuning into Life Beats at Sirisha. We are listening and learning about what life is like in academia, sort of busting the myths. And there's a lot of learning I'm getting around service and how to write grants. There's a lot of on-the-job training for sure. And uh, so when you're talking about, so for those who are listening, I think one takeaway, both of them said is, it is a one-person show. Actually, a one-woman show in this case. I know you used the word man, but it's a one-woman show in this case. Uh, and think about it. You are marketing, you're writing grants, you're serving on committees. And if you're a student, you're probably in school now, but if Writing is not your thing. I think you need to learn to do it as, I mean, no matter which field you are, but in agreement because you'll be writing grants. I remember seeing grants when my advisor was writing, it talked about demographics, it talks mm -hmm. about women, you talked about, you know, underrepresentation. All of these are part of the proposal because you are targeting certain market segments. So there's so much that you're looking at as well. What if, uh, if we have a few minutes, I wanted to touch on what is like, uh, there's something called a tenure process. What does that usually look like for people when they're trying to get in? Yeah, so um, the tenure process is, I think, um, again, a documentation that lays out um, um, your, your, your productivity and your achievements uh, in the area of, again, research, teaching, and service. And so uh, every department has guidelines, and that guidelines have to fit into the university's overall promotion and uh, tenure guidelines. And so some universities will mandate um, one and a half publications per year. Another one would say, up to three peer-reviewed publications for that entire tenure period, which is typically five to six years in any given universities. And so when you get employed as an assistant professor on a tenure track, then you have five to six years to demonstrate your productivity. You demonstrate that you can be a permanent employee, if you will, of that you know uh, institution. And so uh, once you get tenure, you then become an associate professor. And um, your job is sort of guaranteed in academia at that point. Yeah, and then you have students that you're guiding for research for either, usually PhD in most cases, yes. some master's yes. students. And then they go on to do either industry or academic or whatever government institutions, yes. right? Yes, so it's not just the research. I think it's also how many classes you've taught, yes. but how well you're teaching evaluations from students. Yeah. And then how many did you serve on X amount of committees? And so there are guidelines and you have to meet those requirements at the at the department as well as the institutional levels. Essentially, it's looking at the impact factor you're having in all these three sectors that you're being sort of using as the pillars of it. If I may add, um, so when we are hired as a tenure track faculty, we are um, on contract for nine months. So our job is for nine months. So the three months, um, so for the rest of the summer, we don't get paid. Um, and it's like, that's the time we do research. Because okay. the long semesters, the fall and spring, we, we teach. We uh, in, in my university, we have a 2-2 load, which means two courses for a long semester. So you have to teach those and have to have good teaching evaluations. So that goes into our tenure you know, review. Okay. Yeah. And so after six years, the whole thing is the comprehensive uh, thing is looked at for, you know, whether to, when they're making the decisions to 
you know, give us tenure. But that doesn't mean that we don't go through annual reviews. We go through annual reviews. We have a third year review, which is very stringent. If you don't pass that, then it's problematic. <laughs> and then, and um, besides that, um, in our sixth year, when we are up for tenure, they also uh, get some anonymous reviewers, peer reviewers, yeah, yeah. Uh, who are like big people in the field, they have to review our dossier. They don't know who we are. They get a blank just research statement and they would just look at it and say, hey, this person is doing great work and yeah, please, we support there. So there is this external review process, which is really stressful, of course, because you don't know who's going <laughs> to exactly. you know, review you. And, and, our, and our fields are very small, so you know, people know each other. Um, so that's another thing. And then, um, okay, so yeah, the, uh, so the tenure process can be really, really um, different based on like what university you work at. Yeah, as we are wrapping up in the last 30 seconds, I want to thank Sneha and Kirby for being here. I think you, you, I'm so glad you talked about that nine months, three months thing because there's so much on your plate. I think we underestimate it. So if you're thinking about it, think about, you know, find people in your field when you're looking at an avenue to start your career. So you learn from this. I, I hope this has helped you to figure it out. Next week, we'll have Chupar talk about the community college system and how they are helping um, kids engage in two-year programs. So thank you for tuning in to Life Beats and Sirisha.